New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. With so many things now demanding our attention, emails, websites, cell phone alerts, incoming text messages, Twitter tweets, Facebook updates, blog stock updates, and old-fashioned meetings and phone calls, many of us are overwhelmed by the enormity of distractions. Stop and consider that your life may be described as a sum of what you focus on. How may we focus on what is important to us? How can we pay attention to what matters? How can we avoid technology overload? Why do certain things grab our attention and not others? The answers to these and many other questions is the focus of this edition of New Dimensions, today with our guest, Winifred Gallagher. Winifred Gallagher is a writer, and her books include House Thinking, Just the Way You Are, Working on God, The Power of Place, and Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. She lives in New York and Du Bois, Wyoming. Join us for the next hour as we explore improving our ability to focus with our guest, Winifred Gallagher. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Winifred, welcome. I'm so pleased to be here. I'm pleased to have you. Thank you for coming. This is a great subject for all of us right now as we feel really information overload. And um, your whole book is, is about, you've done fantastic research about attention and just what is it. So tell us a little bit, describe what is attention? What that's do you mean the, by that? <laughs> that's the perfect place to start because I think most people haven't given much thought to the nature of attention. Only about 10 years ago, neuroscientists discovered that attention is a process of selection in your brain. It's as if your brain spotlights or photographs the particular target of your attention, the thing that you choose to focus on, and suppresses all the other material. So it's a two-step process of selecting and enhancing one thing. It could be a sight, a sound. It could be a thought or feeling enhancing that one thing and suppressing the surrounding stimuli. So it's as if that thing that your brain photographs is stored in your brain in your kind of photo album of reality, the the picture of what we call reality or the world that's in each of our heads is the product of what you pay attention to. The things that you do not pay attention to in, a, in an amazingly accurate sense 
it's as if they might as well not exist, at least for you. So this, I think, highlights how important it is to choose where you focus your attention because that becomes part of your brain, your experience, and your world. And the things that you don't focus on, don't. So are you going to focus on the angry thought or the peaceful thought? Are you going to focus on um, the productive use of that 15 minutes that you have? Or are you going to spend it um, on the internet surfing the net? It's up to you. And each time you make that decision on what you're going to pay attention to, you're changing your world. Winifred, why do bad things often grab our attention, like a car crash or or something like that? Well, you're actually asking me two questions Uh at the same time. So uh, let's address the car crash first. Okay. We have two forms of attention that our brain can can accomplish. One is called bottom-up attention. It's involuntary attention. And we evolved so that we don't have to think about whether we're going to focus on a car, on the sound of a car crash, flashing red lights, the smell of smoke. Uh, our, our brains have evolved in such a way that they will focus a, us on a very salient event like that without voluntary uh, effort on our part because it protects our lives. It's really important that we know that something is on fire or that there's some danger um, or, or, or uh, if we're hunters and gatherers that there's something that we need to uh, eat for dinner. So that's bottom-up involuntary attention. Then we have top-down voluntary attention, and that is our tool. That is the way you used wrapped attention to create your experience. If bottom-up attention asks, what's the most important thing going on in the world right now? Top-down voluntary attention asks, Justine, what do you want to focus on right now? And that is that is our key for manipulating our experience. That's where you get to say, um, there is a lot of racket going on in the street right now, but I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm going to pay attention to the report that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So that there there's that dichotomy. Now, the other question that you brought up, why do we pay attention to not just car crashes, but but f- negative feelings like anger and guilt and and uh, fear, uh, sadness. Why do those um, uh, affective feelings seem to grab our attention much more than than pleasant emotions? Well, for a very good um, evolutionary protective reason, our brains evolved so that we would pay attention to to those emotions because. Uh, the pain involved with them prompts us to to solve the associated problem. So uh, if you're worried that your child is sick, your anxiety causes you to call the doctor. It's a productive emotion. If, If you witness some injustice, the anger you feel causes you to protest. That's a productive use of a negative emotion. Unfortunately, the trouble is that a lot of our negative thoughts and emotions do not have a productive problem-solving purpose. They're things like, uh, I'll never lose those 10 pounds, or uh, this project is too hard for me. I don't have the background for it. So our our instinct is to focus on those thoughts, but because we have top-down attention, you can turn that around and say, I will lose those 10 pounds if I go to the gym. 
uh, this project is a challenge, but I'm going to give it my best shot and maybe I'll learn something along the way. That makes all the difference in your experience and your life. Which of those thoughts are you going to choose? And you have the power in many cases to choose. I don't I don't like to say happy or positive be, necessarily because it makes it seem sort of Pollyannish as, as if we could all, especially in these very troubled times, as if we could be happy all the time. That's not at, at all the case. But there's almost always a choice you can make between uh, focusing on something that's productive or generative or just a better use of your time as opposed to something that's a poor use of your time and that is not productive. When, you know, there was a word that you used that I had never heard of before in your book, um, and it's anhedonic. And these are, are people who actually do not experience pleasure. I think that we all have met these negative people, and no matter what you say or do or try to cheer them up, they are just going to go to this uh, negative sort of thinking. It's hard to be around them. What can you say about that? Uh, When you first mentioned it, uh, Woody Allen likes to say that he's anhedonic, that it's very hard for him to uh, just relax and have fun. there's a there are a particular a particular type of depression that that um, anhedonia features very um, very uh, in a very big way. I think the the thing to remember here is that perturbed attentional patterns uh, persist across the whole spectrum of mental and emotional disorders, so that depressed people are drawn to focus on the very thoughts and feelings that will make them feel hopeless and helpless. Mm -hmm. Anxious people are drawn to focus on the very fearful, threatening thoughts that will make them feel more anxious. So the there again, the choice, uh, anhedonic people, I'm sure, are drawn to the very things that are going to sap their, their right. ability to take right. pleasure. So there again, as as much as people possibly can, uh, I'm not saying that there aren't people who need medications or other kinds of treatments, but just in, in general, making that decision, just, just simply knowing you have the power to focus on this or that in itself is a very uh, helpful thing. What is research that shows when we do focus on the more positive, on things that are going to be more productive or positive, what does research show about people who do that? There, there's so much research. My, my favorite experiment, because I think it makes the point so clearly, um, it's research done by uh, a psychologist named Barbara Fredrickson. Um, she cues subjects, her research subjects, to be in um, a positive emotional state. And then puts them in front of a computer where they see a visual display on the computer. And then she asks them, measures what they see. The people who are in a positive emotional state see much more. Their peripheral vision is much larger. They literally see the what we call the big picture. And not just visually, but also psychologically. They're in a better position to consider options. They have more choices. They can make better even business decisions. So if when you're in that state, you're, you're seeing a big, ample, beckoning, hopeful world that has options for you. People who are in a neutral or negative state focus very narrowly on kind of the center of the computer screen. 
They don't see the stuff that the other people see. And that's not in most cases, maybe so much a problem where your visual field is concerned, but conceptually, what are you doing to yourself? You can't see the big picture. You're, let's say you're in, a, in emotionally a difficult situation. You've lost a job. You have a sick child. If you can't get out of the trap of focusing only on that very narrow negative thing, you're not going to have all the options and and see the big picture and give yourself a a way to to actually deal with the situation in a more productive manner. I think we're Mr. Kellerman of Freddie Mac in the financial crisis uh, committed suicide uh, over the the awful mortgage situation that's going on in this country. And uh, of course, we don't know exactly why he did that. But his acquaintances all say that he was obsessed he was he felt so badly about this about all the suffering that was going on about his whether his work was involved that he just did 24/7 he kind of went home changed a shirt and went right back at it so that his world narrowed 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 till the only thing in the world became that issue and it was so unbearable that that we don't know but perhaps that's why he took his life so i think that's a a real wake-up call, especially at this time in our country, that even though something terrible might be going on with your job or your financial situation, there are also other things in your life. Like he had a family, he had a lovely child. There are other things going on that can be beautiful and good that are happening at the same time as the stress. And it's, it's so healthy to be able to focus on both things. Yes, you need to do something about your financial situation, but don't forget about the other things that you have that are more hopeful and more positive because it's going to help you in a very practical way to make better decisions. I'm here with Winifred Gallagher, and she's the author of Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. here with Winifred Gallagher, and she is the author of Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. Winifred, why did you name the book Wrapped? Well, it's a, a lovely word, I think, for one reason. And it also captures something that we don't want to lose sight of in all the concern these days about multitasking and looking at attention as a as a very powerful tool, which it certainly is. It's it's your mental money. It's it's you only have enough attention for 173 billion bits of information per lifetime, so you want to spend that cognitive cash very carefully. Um, so all of that is important, but wrapped, I think, captures 
something perhaps even more important, which is when we are totally focused in a in a wrapped or completely absorbed state, that's when we're inviting what is variously called peak experience or flow. It's when we feel that life is worth living. So attention isn't just something that helps you do a lot of jobs efficiently. It's something that connects you to the deepest sense of being a, a sentient being. And uh, certainly in, in the spiritual realm, we have examples of great spiritual masters who were in a state of rapt attention. Uh, I'm thinking of Ramana Maharshi, the great Advaita Vedanta master uh, in India, who uh, had a had a near-death experience as an adolescent and spent the entire rest of his life in a state of rapt focus. Well, that's probably not going to happen for too many of us. I doubt it, but you know. <laughs> but we, we have, have moments. moments. <laughs> Exactly. We have moments, definitely. Um, going back to something you just said, we have 173 billion bits of... Enough. We have enough. We can pay attention to 173 billion right. bits of information in a lifetime. Now, on the one hand, that's a little bit scary that it's finite. And on the other hand, I want to ask you, how do we know that? We know that because uh, the wonderful psychologist at Claremont, um, uh, Chiksent Mahai, measured it. He figured it out. And he's, of course, the, the great psychologist who did all the very important research on flow and showing that these great experiences, when we feel like um, time has stopped, we, we look up and we say, oh, I can't believe it's three o'clock already. Those moments are characterized by two things attention and motivation and the two things that that will engage those two things are activities that are enjoyable but challenging that's why in the end when you go home you come home from work you're exhausted you're really tempted to just channel surf and lie on the couch and veg you will actually have a more satisfying experience if you can push through that inertia and say practice the piano or get out your guitar or even go out and do a little gardening do something that is going to press your buttons a little bit give you a little bit of a challenge but that's also enjoyable it might take you a few minutes to engage when you wish you were back on the couch channel surfing but it ultimately you will get into that activity and you'll you'll end up in so much a better place when you go to bed that night you'll say gosh what a what a great evening and that's the, that's the decision that we have to make and not just we make it in our work life but also uh, our weekends our precious leisure time often um, our weekends that we look so forward to um, but by the time you get to Sunday morning you're kind of wishing you could go back to the office that that issue is because you are not doing activities that are both challenging and enjoyable. You you think it's going to be fun just to veg on the couch, but it's really not after a certain amount of time. But as you say, there is an inertia for that. I mean, it's tremendous in this day and time because the um, distractions that are that kind of passive distraction of of surfing the internet or or watching television is 
huge. I, I, I suspect that some of your listeners are interested in this new, um, there's, it's, it's gotten a cult following now, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. It's been written up in the Atlantic Monthly and is right. now taken very seriously as right. uh, it's a, uh, just to update people a little bit, it's a, a, a show that's a, a four part of actually four years worth of series kind of similar to Star Trek in some ways set in the future and the the big drama of the show is that humans have created this race of kind of super robots that called Cylons they look like people they are much smarter than people because they're supercomputers and these creatures that mankind has created are now engaged in a struggle for control. They're they're literally at a war of the worlds. And the pejorative term that a human calls a Cylon, if he wants to be really insulting, the human calls the Cylon a toaster. You're just a machine. You're just a toaster. And my parallel to that is in our world we have now our blackberries our cell phones our email all these machines we're treating them like they're cylons that they're in charge of us that they control our experience Mm -hmm. but in fact they're only toasters just remember your machines are just toasters don't let them choose your focus for you well, that, that reminds me uh, when, you know, part of your book about relationship and uh, the, I, I recall a, a conversation that I had some years ago about what, what do you consider really sexy in a person, in another person? And I, I was very clear, I thought for a moment and very clear, I said, I, for me, it's like when someone really pays attention to me. They give me eye contact. They are there. They're just. It's just. It's just for me, really, really sexy. And and then in your book, you were talking about. Uh, I think the Mertz um, eye robot, you know, sort of thing. And you were describing this robot that gave you all this eye contact and and even could cock its head and questioning and. And I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, uh, our, in our society, because we are so separated from that kind of human contact through all this electronic uh, devices that we're playing with, um, emails, we're not having that face-to-face as much maybe as we used to, especially young people. Um, I was thinking, golly, this would be tempting to to then have these computers come and, and take our take that kind of one-on-one human contact away. Well, I think they kind of are. I, I always think it's amusing when I pass a Starbucks and I see all these, you know, lots of, I live in a college neighborhood and I see all these attractive young people sitting beside each other, but they're all looking at their machines. What would happen if they were in a cafe, what used to happen, where you actually meet somebody or talk to the person next to you? But isn't it a funny thing that we go to a social space and then pull out machines and stare at them? It's true. I think the relationship issue that you brought up uh, is so important. It was the most of all the research I did for the book. The most surprising to me was the information that I got on relationships. We think of attention as a very individual thing. It's me looking at the world. It seems very personal, like right in my brain. In fact... It's the bottom line of relationships. You cannot have a relationship with somebody who will not pay attention to and to whom you do not pay attention. I mean, what is the marriage bond? It's it's an agreement 
for between two people to like let's focus on each other let's give each other a special kind of attention that's a commitment to do that and it's not an accident that as you say rodney brooks the brilliant um, designer of um he's the at mit he's the chairman of of irobot he made those wonderful little vacuum cleaners roombas that people have and he's invented all these intelligent machines and the first thing you have to give a robot if it's going to interact with people is the ability to give the person the sense that the machine is paying attention to you. And you do that exactly, as you said, by having the machine make eye contact and tilting its head and chin just the way we do and we're listening. And the machine can also read the fact that you're doing that back. That's the bottom line of relationships. And we are undermining this, I think, so often by interacting with machines that don't, don't, wink their eyes and cock their chins at us. It's a very fundamental... I, I love this one piece of research, actually, a very important um, survey of, of um, in the marriage literature. The psychologist asked uh, couples to keep a log of all the events that happened in the week. These are two people living together. So they, dinners, helping the kids with the homework, trips to the store, movies, whatever. In relation to one another. And in la- yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Here's what happened to, to us this week. Uh-huh. When they compared the list, the level of correlation between the husband and wife was at the level of mere chance. Mm. And these are people who have a special bond and presumably... Uh, are sharing the same world. I think of that expression that sometimes you'll hear an exasperated, often an exasperated wife say about her husband, he lives in a different world. It's true, he does. And so do you and so do I. We live in different worlds. The, The nature of attention, it's by definition a process of selection. So the great advantage of attention is that it lets you take the big, potentially chaotic, vast world and condense it to sort of a pocket edition that you call the world. But that little edition that you focus on is much more subjective and much more fragmented than you assume. So that's a downside of it. That is that is the drawback. And, and it means where, where um, relationships are concerned, it's, it's such a platitude to say communication is so important. I mean, we all know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you and your nearest and dearest do live in different worlds. And it is crucial that you communicate about those two worlds. And it's, it's time-consuming. And we, we're, just, we're, we're always feeling pressed for time. And it, it does take time. Relationship, whether it's your, your companion in your home or if it's your work or your developing friends, you have to actually make a conscious decision to have that interaction. And it's a big decision because it, it's not it's not something that you can just sort of, okay, I've got my list and I'm going to go to the grocery store and pick up these things off the shelf. No, you've got to relate. You've got to listen. You've got to sit there. You've got to take time. And and we don't do that. Often we, we fail in our primary relationships my husband and i notice increasingly how few phone calls we get on our landline it's almost like we could remove that phone um, Mm. from the house because most of our communications come on cell phones or uh, even more so email 
or blackberries. So, but what's the cost of that? If all my interactions, even with my friends, are taking place in email, I can go for weeks or months sometimes without actually hearing their voice. It becomes uh, it becomes so that uh, if someone calls you on the phone and you actually have a real-time conversation, you're thinking, gee, is this the best use of my time? I, it's true. And yet, on the other hand, we are hungry for it. That's right. It's it's an odd sort of thing. We're hungry for it. It comes down to top-down attention. What what are my priorities? And unless you s- stop and think about where where I have a finite amount of attention, pretend it's money. It's your mental money. Where are you going to spend that money? Mm-hmm. Are you going to dis- make the decision that yes, you are going to call that friend to catch up or not? Exactly. I'm here with Winifred Gallagher. She's the author of Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Winifred Gallagher, and she's the author of many books, including um, The Power of Place, Working on God, and Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. Winifred, let's talk about decision-making and how we can use uh, focus to uh, help us with that. And um, when facing decisions, in your book, you, you state research that we have we're much more likely to look at what we might have to give up rather than what we gain yes a wonderful psychologist called daniel kahneman actually got the nobel prize in economics of all things in 2003 um, for pointing out that even when people make very serious substantial presumably objective decisions about money and finance they are often their decisions are are perturbed by certain human tendencies which uh, one of them being to focus more on whether you could risk losing if you invest in a, in a particular project let's say uh, versus your p- potential gain so we exaggerate the risk of loss against the potential gain and i think we can do that very often in our emotional lives too uh, people struggling with a relationship i'm i'm afraid to get too committed to that person because i could what what if he leaves me mm-hmm. as opposed to you know what can i gain what does my life gain as i go forward with this person so it, even though he got the prize in economics his his insights are not limited to economics i think my favorite of his insights which he calls his fortune cookie maxim is nothing is as important as you think it is when you're thinking about it and this is a big one just and here again this has so much to do with attention simply because you're thinking about something the pink slip you just got the bad manicure you just got, however important or seemingly trivial it is, objectively, simply because you're thinking about it, you raise its importance. So that lousy manicure seems much more important than it really is. And the pink slip 
seems much more important than it really is. But the pink slip is important. It is very important, but you're going to make it even more important by thinking about it to the Mm -hmm. point that you might forget that it's true you got a pink pink slip and maybe you're in crisis, but that doesn't mean that you still don't have a loving family, um, your beloved pet, your uh, meditative practice or your religious congregation or, you know, all the other things, your health. I wrote Wrapped because I had a very, very aggressive, not very hopeful case of breast cancer. That's that's where I started with um, the research. And I felt almost immediately upon, between the time that I got the biopsy from hell at the hospital and I arrived home in a way that was very unusual for me, I had a very clear insight that this illness wanted to absorb all of my attention, and that I could spend however much time I had left thinking about nothing but how I was going to die, and I had cancer, and I was going to have these terrible treatments, and blah, 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 blah. That could could have been my focus. Or, in fact, I was still alive, and I would just focus as much as possible on moving ahead with my life to the best of my ability. I I have five kids. I had a manuscript that was due. I had Christmas shopping to do. And... This coping strategy to focus on moving ahead, I was not in denial. I had four, four rounds of chemo, 15 hours of surgery, four more rounds of chemo, six weeks of daily radiation. You are not in denial when you're having that kind of treatment. But whenever I wasn't literally bedridden, I got up, I washed my face, I put on my sweatsuit, and I went across the hall, and I worked on my book, and I had dinner parties, and I saw friends. I went to yoga. I did as much as I possibly could to move forward with my life, and it was such a successful coping strategy that I, when I recovered, I said, I've got to look into this attention thing. There's there's something that works here. When you, It's one thing to have a psychological theory. It's another thing to test drive it over mm-hmm. some pretty rugged mm-hmm. terrain. So this was a very personal book for you. It started out, I I don't want, the book is in no no way, shape, or form a cancer memoir, Mm -hmm. and and I do not appear in any of the chapters, just a little bit in the introduction to explain to people why I think attention is so important. And it starts off with, with the neuroscience of attention, how attention works in your brain. I had no idea of any of this, but I became so um, impressed with the efficacy of just deciding as as William, the epigraph of the book is my hero is William James. And he tells us my experiences, my experience is what I choose to attend to, what I agree to attend to. Mm. My experience is what I agree to attend to. And I agreed to attend to moving forward to my life. I am not Pollyanna. I was not happy all the time. I'm not glad I had cancer. It wasn't the best thing that ever happened to me. I know there are other people have a different experience with it. On the other hand, it was not the worst thing that happened to me. And I think because I was able to, as much as possible, choose something productive rather than something not productive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you say, when you mention that James, uh, William James quote about, I agree mm. to attend to certain things, they, there's not a central control center. Let's talk about the brain uh, mm. in our brain that's uh, our 
focusing or our attention center is there? Well, how does that all work? Yeah, that would have been nice, wouldn't it, if we had an attention yeah. center in the brain right. and there it was, attention central. Last week, I had a wonderful experience of um, giving a talk at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, and my my uh, fellow dialoguer was the great brain scientist, Dr. Uh, Richard Restack, who did some of listeners probably saw his PBS series on the brain. He's written 18 books on the brain. And he was um, he was such a wise uh, and wonderful person to have a dialogue with. But before we started, he, because he's a brain scientist, he showed some slides uh, that made the point that attention really uh, takes place all over your brain. There are certain parts of the brain that are, seem more involved than others. But every neuron has a kind of an attentional bias. It's just, it's really, I think, arguably the core of our mental life. Without attention, we just don't have much. Mm-hmm. Now, also, there are these conflicting things that go on in the brain con- in in the way that if we're going to make a decision, let's say, let's let's talk about uh, our health or let's talk about eating and, and we're we're going to make a decision to have a piece of cake or not to have a piece. We're going to die, at, but the cake is right there. Yeah. And so there are all these conflicting things that are going on. Can you talk about those? There's some wonderful um, research on willpower that shows that rather than we like to think of the self as this kind of um, like a Yoda kind of sitting in the middle of our brain that's kind of calling the shots as if there was sort of one self. In fact, um, some uh, psychologists argue that the self is actually kind of a grab bag of conflicting selves and voices that um, and depend and they bicker all the time about which what am I going to do which way am I going to go and which one of those selves which one of those voices you pay attention to is very very important and the example that you gave I think diet is a good one because so many uh, Americans are struggling with weight issues um, one very important fact is lots of people who think they're on a diet and if you ask them, they'll say, yes, I'm dieting, um, have no idea how much food they are actually eating. And the research on this is just staggering. Um, the contrast between what people will say they just ate at a restaurant versus the, the scientists who were hiding behind the banquette who were writing down what they actually ate. So a big one is just actually paying attention to how much food you're eating. That's one issue. Another one, which you alluded to, is um, you, you go to Weight Watchers and you're psyched and you're not going to break your rules and you know, and then you go to a, a friend's party and they hand you a piece of cake and th- down the hatchet goes. Apparently, and this is deeply re, uh, rooted in animal, even in animal research, we have a, uh, an attentional bias to focus on going for the fast reward. And you could see how this would have served us pretty well in evolution when it's like a feast or famine situation. Just go for it. If, if there's food there, go for it. If, so when someone hands that brownie, would you like a brownie? Your instinct is to say Yes. Apparently, if you can count to 10, take a deep breath, that instinct is strong but fleeting. If you can just find a way to divert your attention a little bit uh, to something else and give it 10 seconds, you'll be able to think, if not say, I would like the brownie, but I'm not going to have it because I'm on Weight Watchers and I'm going to lose those 10 pounds. In, in when you say it's strong but fleeting, that the, that's the good news is that we, we don't really keep that thought or 
for very long. It's it's intense. Tough it out. There was another um, uh, exercise or process that you mentioned, and I don't remember where where you got it about asking yourself what's what what part of you is hungry. Yes, um, a nutritionist I talked to, a dietitian, um, said that if you're if you wonder about whether you're really hungry or whether you just want to eat. Put your hands on the body part where you're feeling that hunger, and if you if you if your hands go to your head, it's just an urge to eat. If the, your hands go to your tummy, you're actually hungry. Right. That's that's right. an interesting. Right. Um, that's an interesting thing. Another very good tip. Um, or yeah, well, let's see. Your head and your mouth. Yeah, there, so um, there was, I think the mouth was. Um, one was. I'm embarrassed to say I can't exactly remember. Maybe maybe your head was an emotional need. Your your mouth was, was taste, taste and your yeah. and your uh, your tummy was was real. Was real. Was. But there but there is a way uh, that works for a lot of people to try to identify. And and the same dietitian suggested that people carry a little log, mm-hmm. and just she said people who carry food logs and write down every single thing they eat or drink. Just if you do nothing else but that, you'll eat thirty percent less. And so this kind of bypasses that part of us that that we try and tap into called willpower, but I'm not sure that that works, whatever that is. I'm not sure what willpower is. We use that word, but I... I Attention is a very big piece of it, and and uh, William James talking about his brother Henry William James um, was a very big believer in willpower and in his sequence it goes something like this and he gave this wonderful exercise uh, from his own life he was a professor almost all of his life at Harvard first in the and, and say when he when he lived he lived around the, he died in his great book principles of psychology came out in 1890 that was his kind of his heyday uh, he was a professor first of philosophy at Harvard and then he literally invented the discipline of psychology along with a German uh, fellow called Wilhelm Wundt. Uh, Then he became a professor of psychology at Harvard. And he had a very, very busy schedule. And he wanted to do a certain amount of reading, uh, some great work that was going to take a long time. And he he didn't have the time in his day to do it. And he lived in Boston where it's freezing cold in the wintertime and not a very well-heated house. He said, the only time I can do it is if I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and do it. And he said, the first couple of days were very hard because there's that inertia. But I focused, I put my attention on the fact that I want to do that reading. And attention led to a habit. And a habit changes your character. So by the time he was done, months later, he was a different person. It's a wonderful, wonderful idea. It's really taking that whole willpower step by step, and it's looking at the goal. So he kept looking at the goal. That's right. Yeah. I'm here with Winifred Gallagher. She is the author of Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Winifred Gallagher, and we're talking about attention and focus in our life. We were talking about, just before the break, about eating and, and, and how, how we can really refocus ourselves. And I, I know that you've, you've mentioned in the book some other things about what happens when we actually do succumb to, let's say we are on a diet or, or food program and we go off of it and we have the piece of cake or whatever it is. It's more than just that one piece of cake that's going on. Can you explain that yeah, to us? Yeah, it sure is. And as you point out, it's not just a, a food issue. It, it can be alcohol. It can be drugs. It can be relationship issue. It can be uh, a moral issue. Anything where we're making a, a choice and we feel that we know what the right quote unquote thing to do is and we don't do it. What's the real damage there? Often, it's not so much the the lapse, the the brownie that you ate when you're on a diet, or the extra margarita you had, or the or your decision not to send donation to charity to buy yourself a new pair of shoes or something. Whatever whatever that issue is, what is often not so important about you know, the outcome of that particular, the objective result of that decision. It's it's the idea that you have given yourself that I, what you're focusing yourself on is, I am not the kind of person who can stay on a diet. I can't stay on a diet. I can't say no to that substance. Um, I'm not a charitable, generous person. Uh, I'd rather buy something for myself. That's often the, the really damaging issue. And I think if we're in that situation and we can sort of flip the flip the, the way we usually look at things and say, this decision is not whether I should have a chocolate-covered donut. This decision is whether I, Winifred, can stick to this healthy eating plan that I know is going to make me feel and function better. That's the issue. And that's the issue. And it's it's kind of undermining that foundation of the the. the the long-term goal that you're going for. That's right. And, and always keeping that in mind. How does, how does that help? Well, there's a, uh, there's a chapter in the book, actually, on the relation, very important relationship uh, between attention and motivation. And often, um, the two things become disconnected. We've just given a lot of examples of that, um, where we, we set a goal for ourselves. You know, we want to become fit, or we want to become sober. And somehow, um, even though we're focusing on that goal, we're missing the motivational piece, the, the, the psychic energy that propels us towards the goal. So you've got to keep those two things locked together and not let them drift apart because it's so easy for them to drift apart. Exactly. This this reminds me of, uh, uh, we. there were some experiments. This is about the way we, we focus as, as culturally we focus. And um, there have been experiments with uh, American kids and Asian kids or Chinese kids or no, Japanese kids, I think. East Asians. East, East Asians. They were uh, adults, actually. Oh, they were adults. Mm-hmm. So... Tell us about, it was interesting the way the two cultures focus. Interesting and very important now that we live in this shrinking world where 
conflicts and misunderstandings are so have such implications. Um, by and large, people from the modern Western world, Europeans and Americans, if you uh, show them a, a, a scene of, a, let's say, an aquarium or an underwater scene, and you ask them, what, what, what did the picture show? They will say something like, there were three big blue fish swimming off to the left, the end. If you ask East Asians, they see the same scene. You ask them, what did you see? They say, it looked like it was underwater. There were some um, plants and fish and some rocks and I, there was sand on the bottom. And they both groups looked at the exact same thing. But the Westerners who grow up from childhood um, in the Greek rational, evaluative, what's the most important thing here and ha with the corollary and, and how can I control it if I possibly can? Uh, that's it's not that that's a bad way of of looking at the world. That's what brought us science, evaluative, logical thinking. In the Asian framework, they looked at the entire scene, the larger context, the big picture, the relationship between things. The fish were not necessarily more important than the plants or the rocks. And that bespeaks their cultural experience in very densely populated, um, uh, communities where you can't you can't survive as an individual. You have to cooperate to get things done. It's a completely different world. The, an, uh, one of the most touching examples, I think, um, the same psychologist Richard Nisbet at University of uh, Michigan, who did this research, he showed uh, if you show uh, Westerners um, a, a little uh, drawing of a sea of faces, and there's one smiling face surrounded by uh, frowning faces, and you you point to the smiling face and you ask the Westerners, "How does this little guy feel?" They say, "Happy, obvious. He's smiling." You ask the Asians and they say, he looks like he's happy because he's smiling, but all the people around him are frowning. So maybe he's not really happy. Maybe he's just trying to pretend that he's happy. And what a different view of reality. Oh, it's a very different view of reality and just reminds us how how different we are in in the in looking at diversity and how important it is to take that in and to understand that and and, and also that the fact that it's, it's another great example of you live in a different world different people different cultures looking at the exact same you would think it would be perfectly objective it's a you know an underwater scene perfectly objective looking at completely focusing on completely different realities. I know that there are benefits of that kind of targeted way of looking at things in the West, but since we are coming into a world that is much more densely populated and we are understanding the tremendous interconnectedness between everything, do you think that there's something to be gained by really seeing more clearly how the, the Asian communities look at life and society? Absolutely, and I think it comes up all the time in the news. Um, the you know the so-called clash of civilizations. A lot of it has to do with um, the Americans saying, "Let's get what's let's get down to brass tacks here. What's what's important? Let's just solve the issue." And people from other parts of the world saying, "Wait, we haven't talked. We haven't had a cup of tea. You haven't um, 
given me any signs of civility or understanding. To us, that's like frills because it's not getting down to brass tacks. We're so quick. Yeah. We're, we're just kind of... Zero right in. Every right. every interaction is instrumental. Mm-hmm. Everything, why should I do something if it's not instrumental? And the rest of the world doesn't necessarily look at things that way. They're more interested in Relation, setting a certain yeah. relational, contextual tone. And I mean, the implications... Uh, for foreign, uh, I mean, look at look at our our situations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and imagine how often these things come up uh, with China. Mm-hmm. We had a, a a big illustration of it a, a couple of years ago when the Chinese shot down an American spy plane over Chinese territory, and it you know you can see something like this turning into World War Three, where we said you shot down our plane, give our plane and our pilot back, and they said, wait a minute, you were over our airspace, you're not even like apologize, you're not. Where's the context? Yes, yes. It's and not just, we shot down your plane. Right, right, exactly. So here we are. I, I want to talk about um, meditation. You, you've really given some part of your book to, to this as a possible way of helping us to expand our ability to focus and stay focused. So talk about how that, how that works, how meditation helps the brain. Well, research, um, a lot of it done by Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin. He actually does these wonderful colored, I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen these pictures of his uh, of brain fMRI brain scans with the brain uh, as if showing in different colors when people are focusing on something positive or something negative or the meditating, not meditating. It's, it's a wonderful objective kind of way to look at what's going on when you're in different men- mental states. And he has done a lot of his research with Buddhist uh, Tibetan lamas in particular because they've spent 10,000 hours or more meditating. And uh, it's not, and he hastens to say, there's no religious context to his work. You can get the same exact benefits if you, you can meditate on a, on a pencil if you want. It doesn't make any difference in terms of what's going on for, for, for much of, not all of the practice, but much of the practice. Basically, he's found two things: that when you do um, when you do single pointed meditation, which is very familiar, people who meditate on the breath, or meditate on a mantra or a mandala or anything on waves at the beach or birdsong, whatever it is that you, if you can consistently keep your mind focused on that target every day for a period, I think most of his research is two months uh, intervals, um, you will become much more focused um, in your daily life. So when you get up off your cushion or you leave the beach, as you go about your business, you'll be able to address this issue, this issue, that issue. We think of Barack Obama, people say, how can he function? I mean, any one of the problems that he has to focus on every day is enough to send most of us over the edge. How does he do it? He's a spectacular focuser. So I'm sure he does. People say, oh, he's so calm. He he deals with the economy. Next, then he is totally focused on healthcare. He, he goes right. through it that way. Right. Now, the other type of um, attention is... Uh, Buddhist compassion, the the lamas meditate on a feeling of unconditional love, and that seems to increase your emotional well-being uh, as well as your, just as the single-pointed attention increases your ability to focus. So an ideal regimen would be to combine them both. Well, thank you so much for writing this book and for being with us today, Winifred. 
It was a real pleasure. I wish all the listeners could see this wonderful space and the beautiful books and photographs and Justine's smiling oh, face. Thank you. Thank you. It is a special, special little cubby hole here. I've been interviewing Winifred Gallagher, and she's the author of many books, including House Thinking, Just the Way You Are, Working on God, The Power of Place, and Wrapped, Attention and the Focus Life. My name is Justine Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3306. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.